This message is brought to you by Living Faith Church. You can find us on the web at livingbyfaith.com. I'm going to carry on from where we were yesterday and not yesterday. We weren't here yesterday. Last week. Um, I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 12. It's talking about Saul. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Then the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And when he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank, uh, sorry, and he was there, but neither ate nor drank. Um, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. We look at this and uh, this incident and what happened here very often from Saul's perspective. But what I want to point out in that reading was God's take on it was this. After God, Jesus had met with Saul, it says God saw him and he was praying. We're talking about a religious man here. We're talking about a guy who was schooled and scholared in the Torah. He understood the Old Testament. And so he was a man that was accustomed to prayer. But what surprises me about this is that in the context of everything, God has a look and says, but he's a man praying. He's praying and the the prayer that he is praying becomes something of significance because he's praying from a different place. He used to pray from form. Now he's praying from relationship. I want to speak to you today about how our conversations with God are transformational and carry power. Very often we find ourselves in a place where we are trying our best to live the Christian life, but we're struggling to walk into the fullness of what it's all about. And we find ourselves frustrated with where we are. And we don't always understand why things don't work out the way that they do. I want to speak to you about that today. Because I think everybody finds themselves at some point or another on that journey. He finds him praying. I want you to see what's important is that God had said to him that he would he was to go into that into um, into this into the city. And while he was there, God said to him that he was going to send somebody to come and to pray for him so that he could have his sight. He was praying into what God had told him. God had given him something that gave him direction, that gave him impetus, that gave him subject matter for what he was praying into. When you go to a restaurant, what is the first thing that you see? The menu. A menu! 
What does a menu do? A menu takes the offering of what the restaurant is all about and it makes it available. And it says, let us speak to you about what you can get here. And when you read the menu, it's broken up into different sections and it gives you, this is your entree and this is your dessert and this is your starter and these are the different things that you can have and maybe you want beef and maybe you want chicken and maybe you're vegetarian or maybe you're vegan and eat nothing but green stuff and it does, whoever you might be, you're going to find something on the menu. But the menu becomes really important because the menu says to you, this is what we're all about. This is what we have to offer. The thing about the menu is, the menu is designed to feed your appetite. It's designed to make you salivate and go, oh, that sounds delicious. That sounds really nice. The menu is there to be at a place where your cravings are tantalized and you go, oh, I might like to try that, but what about this? And this could be really nice as well. It's designed to make you hungry. The thing about it is, Nobody's ever gone into a restaurant and ordered the menu and sat down and had a look at everything that was available and everything that the menu had to offer and got up and said, thank you so much. We're full. We're out of here. Because the menu has a purpose. The purpose of the menu is to take you to a place where you experience the meal. The menu has not completed its function if all you ever do is look at the menu. The menu is designed to take you to a place where your appetite is satiated and your hunger is filled. And until you get to that place where you actually get to eat the meal and enjoy the meal, what ends up happening is you live in a place of dissatisfaction. That's where many Christians are. Many Christians are menu Christians. We have a look at the Bible and we have a look at everything that Christ is about. We have a look at the full offering of what he's provided for us. We have a look at all that he is and what he's, what, what he, the life that he's inviting us into. And we get so excited about it and it makes us hungry for the things of him and it feeds our spiritual appetite and we want something more of that. The challenge with it is too many people close the menu when they leave and they've never got to the place where they eat the meal. And so they're hungry and they have a spiritual appetite, but they live from spiritual dissatisfaction. Paul finds himself in an interesting place because he was a menu Christian. He was a menu Christian. He knew everything about the menu, more than most people knew about the menu. He could talk about the menu. He'll tell you the colors about the menu. They used to debate about the menu. And what should come first? Should we put like the, the, the beef or the chicken first? And then they want to speak about what the different offering is. And actually, is it a comfortable flow between that as an entree and this as a dessert? Or could it be different if it is this way? And, what the, and this is what happens with so many churches. We want to sit and talk about and deliberate about the menu and how it looks and what it should be and where it comes from and the origins of all of these things. And nothing in and of itself is wrong with any of that stuff because to some degree, it opens up new possibilities and opportunities for us. But unless it takes you to the meal, it's never fulfilled its function. We know the word of God. We can quote the word of God. I can give you the scripture reference. I know what the message of the month is. I understand all of that stuff. I can have everything, everything that the word has to offer. But unless I partake of the meal, I don't really experience the fullness and what it has available for me. 
Paul found himself at that place and he's walking along and all of a sudden Jesus intervenes in his life. And at that very moment when Jesus intervened in his life, he stopped for a minute and you know what he said in himself? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Suddenly, in that moment, he tasted the truth of everything that he had read on the menu and it changed everything for him. It changed the way that he viewed things because I tasted the meal and I recognized it's not just words that are an invitation. It's not words that simply are designed to feed an appetite. It's designed to introduce me to life. And when he had the introduction to life, when he had the introduction to Jesus, he was at that place and he said, I'm changing everything because I've recognized that knowledge has its place. Understanding has its place, but it's nothing but a prelude to greatness. I'm not going to get stuck in feeding my head all of those things because what my pursuit is at this point is to know him and the power of his resurrection. The place that I want to go is, how do I live from that point of encounter? That place where I tasted him and I said, oh, this is so good. I don't want to live from the menu anymore. I want to live from relationship. I want to speak to you this morning about the spark of life. The spark of life. In that moment when Jesus met with him, he initiated something in Saul's life. Something began. And the initiation wasn't Jesus' part. Paul wasn't expecting it. Paul wasn't looking for it. But he initiated something in that place that was so vibrant, that was so alive, that was so full of vitality that it ended up changing who Saul was and ultimately changed his entire character and personality and he became Paul. But in that intimate initiation, in that initial phase where Jesus began to do something new in him, we're introduced to something so fundamental. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to fulfill it. It becomes powerful because we believe and we walk into the truth that as born-again believers, we're dealing with spiritual matter, not natural matter. If you're dealing with spiritual matter, we have to understand John 6.63, the spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. He's talking to you, and the invitation is this. It's not just making you aware of the fact that he initiated and he's doing something in it. But he wants, he wants us to come to the place of recognition, appreciation, and embracing the truth that I can do nothing of myself, only he can do it. Anything I can do is of the flesh. The flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. Where do I get spirit? I got to get it from him. What he's saying is, you couldn't do in your life what I did. You were a sinner. Unrighteous. But he began a good work in you. And when he began a good work in you, what he did was, he came in and he made you brand new. 
And he filled you with his nature, which made you righteous. You couldn't do that in yourself. It had to be something which was of the spirit, not the flesh. What he's saying to you is he who began a good work in you, which is spiritual in nature, the fullness of life, the fullness of promises, the fullness of everything that he has available to you and that he wants you to walk into is never going to be achieved or accomplished anywhere outside of him. So we begin to realign our lives and recognize the fact that anything that I get from him, which is the written word, is nothing more than an invitation to communion. Because unless I step into that space, all I can do is try and take the word of God and live it out. And we've tried to do that for too long. We were well-intentioned and we were well-motivated. But the problem with it is we hadn't necessarily come to the place that Saul got to, where he was like, taste and see that the Lord is good. When you taste him in your life, knowledge becomes so inconsequential. In the shadow of life, knowledge and understanding takes a horrible backseat. Life can do some stuff that knowledge can never do. We can be informed and knowledgeable. We can quote scripture all we want. But until we have a connection with life, we never live from vitality. Too much of the church is characterized by flesh and not spirit. We wonder why the world isn't interested in what the, world or what the church has to offer. Because what we're giving them is flesh. And they're looking at it and they're saying, I see your rules, I see your regulations, I see your disposition to life. I understand the, the context in which you're inviting me into, but I don't like it because it reeks to me of form, not liberty. The spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Not only for me, but for the world. And so we find ourselves at an interesting place because for many Christians, we're living from the menu. We're understanding God from the menu. I'm wanting to gain a context of who he is. And when I live from the menu, the problem with it is there's no life. So I'm going to talk about me, not you, okay? This might be for, this might be for your neighbor. Just nudge them and say, this is probably for you. It's not for me. This is the message. Lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. It's on the menu. It's on the menu. But you know what? I've laid hands on some sick people and you know what happened? Nothing. I've believed for healing and you know what happened? Nothing. The authority of the believer. I'm a big fan of the authority of the believer. Believe me, I've, I've bound some stuff and I've loosed some stuff and then all kinds of stuff all over the place. But not everything was bound and loosed. But I was living from the menu. I found the scripture and I quoted the scripture. I was at a place where I stood on all of those things and I was saying what should be happening. I was quoting it. I had my declarations and my declarations were coming forward. My God shall supply all of my needs 
and I'm speaking to my needs and I'm bounding this and I'm cursing that and I'm loosing this and I'm looking for the provision. And you know what happened? Never came. I told you it was for your neighbor, not you. <laughs> Ever been in that path? Ever walked along that a little bit? And I began to realize as I began to pursue this, it's important for me to understand why the word of God isn't working in my life like it should. I don't like things like, well, you know, some things of the spirit you just never understand. It's just a mystery. And it's like, I understand it's a mystery. The problem with it is I wasn't called just to live a mystery. I was called to live by the word of God. If I'm called to live by the word of God, the word of God should be working in my life. If it's not working, why isn't it working? And I think I found out why. John chapter 5. John 15, verse 5. Without me, you can do nothing. <gasps> Without me, you can do nothing. Do you know what he was saying? It's a spirit that gives life, flesh profits nothing. My words are spirit and they're life. What he has to offer and what he can provide for me, what he can do for me, I can't do for myself. The secret is to understand that we are to live from a place of connection with him. Relationship. Relationship is just not a nice to heaven Christianity. It's not like in principle it's a good thing. What I'm proposing to you is relationship is everything in Christianity. And unless I'm at a, I've discovered how to move into that arena where I know that God is, unless I find myself at a place where I understand what it is to connect with him and to live from that space, unless I can hear his voice, the challenge with it is it's very difficult for me to live in the life of the Christian experience. What Paul said was exactly that. He's like, I don't want to go back to the word. I want to discover I've had an encounter, but how do I live from connection? I've met him and I tasted and he's good, but I don't want to leave that as a once-off somewhere in my life. It's a space that I want to live from. How do I live from that place? He was looking for connection. He was looking for relationship. He was looking to know him and the power of his resurrection because everything that I need, the vibrancy, the vitality, and the life of all that I need in Christianity comes from him and nowhere else. Without me, you can do nothing. Do you know that cars are pretty much a self-contained entity? What you need a car to do will do everything for you. Cars, when I was telling my kids, when we had cars when I was their age, we used to roll the window up. They were shocked. <laughs> you did that? I was telling them, we never even had seatbelts back in our days. Safety, people didn't talk about safety. We jumped around like hooligans in the car. Nowadays, my parents would be in jail. But it was just different. But cars today aren't like the cars of yesterday. Yesterday's cars used to be functional. It gets you from A to B. Cars nowadays, it's like, it's, it's luxury that comes with speed. That's what it's about. It's like, okay, so you've got like heat, heated seats and they're so nice. And then you've got like a massager 
And then, it, you, because it gets really cold here on a winter's day, so let's heat up your steering wheel as well. We don't have old AM, FM radios. We have to kind of get it perfectly on the dial. Otherwise, it was like, yeah. <laughs> we have satellite radio. Bang. Commercial free. We have everything in the car. It's luxurious. It's comfortable. It provides every need that we have. And yet, you know, in that vehicle, there is a little something that's hidden away. There is a little something put away there called a battery. And you know what the battery's message is? Without me, you can do nothing. <laughs> it's like our Christianity. We have everything available. And we know that it's there and it's accessible and it's a part of who we are and we can touch it and we can feel it and we can, we can make it a part of who we are. And yet Christ is sitting saying, without me, you can do nothing. I am the spark that gives it life. And if you try and get it to work outside of relationship, you're going to walk into your flesh and not live by the spirit and nothing happens. You can do it because I read about it. I can do it because I saw it on the menu. I can do it because it becomes important to me. I can do it because I'm well-intentioned. But there's no life until you get the spark. Living by the menu is blunt. God is not a blunt God. God is interested in your life, in your situations, in what's going on right now. He says to Ananias, are you listening? Yeah. And the Lord said to him, this is on me, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, you'll find him praying. He was specific. What I'm proposing to you is this. In moving forward with our Christianity, when we find that secret place where we commune with God, where we spend time with God, where we allow him to speak into my life and into my circumstances, get prepared for specificity. Get prepared for specificity. Because the menu is truthful. But in that context, he's going to give detail. The challenge with a lot of Christians nowadays is that we think that we are living by faith. But because we're not living from relationship, we actually just find ourselves in hope. Hope is not a bad thing. Hope is an important thing. Because when you're sitting in a situation where you don't know what the alternatives are and everything looks bleak, bleak, bleak and negative, you need to know that you've got some hope. The good thing about the menu is it says, I can give you something. This is what's available. This is what's accessible. By the stripes of Jesus, I am healed. I have the mind of Christ. I want to thank you, Father, that my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. It's all of that. He'll tell you. The menu is there. But the menu is to invite you into participating and experiencing it. And the only way we do that is when we engage him. Hope is wonderful. The thing about hope is hope is engaged and empowered in the context of relationship. 
And in that space, what happens is hope becomes faith. Hope becomes faith. The just are not to live by hope. The just are to live by faith. It's a wonderful thing. But when we understand the difference between hope and faith, we understand that what he's really saying to us is this. If you want to experience fullness of life, you experience it in the context of relationship. If we don't have intimacy of relationship with him, you can't have faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the spoken, not the written word. Don't go to the menu. The menu is designed to invite you into the secret place where you meet with him. And you sit and you converse with him. And you talk to him about what's happening in your life and in your situations. And in that context, he begins to sit and he will speak to you. I actually don't like the word speak because a better word is he will communicate with you. Sometimes you just feel promptings and urges and you just know it in yourself. I just have a peace about it. When I live from that place, it brings about a difference in me that it's like, this is right. I just know it because I'm living from that place. It becomes important for us because he's doing something in, in us and what we want. Hold on, I wanted to tell you something. I can't remember what it was. See, this is what happens when you're about 106. Oh, I know what I was going to tell you. It, it, he's, it's, it's the nuances. You weren't paying attention. You should have brought me back. Rafa, it's your fault. <laughs> he's talking about the nuances of the word. What he's saying is, I want to invite you into something. Because it's only when the menu invites you into relationship that something happens. Because when I take my hope in with him and I hear what he has to say, all of a sudden what happens is faith comes on the inside of me. Faith is the substance of things. It's substance. Faith has got no substance. I hope it happens. It would be really nice if it did. I think it would be great. It'll change my life. But it's got no substance. It's when you go into a relationship with him and you begin to speak to him. And all of a sudden he speaks or communicates with you. And suddenly you have a sense of knowing. And in that place, it changes everything. Because I'm no longer living by what I hope for. I'm living by faith. The centurion has a servant, and he's sick. And in Luke chapter 7 and verse 3, it says that the centurion heard about Jesus. He heard about hope. He heard about someone that could do something in a situation that was dire. He heard about someone who could bring about transformation and change. He was filled with hope. And because of his hope, actually, he never even came to Jesus. He sent somebody on his behalf to Jesus. And what did he do? He, in verse 7, he says, if you just speak the word, he'll be healed. Will you heal him? What happened? Hope drew him to Jesus because I know you are the spark of life. You're the one who can make it happen. But I can't just live hoping that you do something, Jesus. Will you do it? And when he said, I will heal him, that's all. What happened in that moment when Jesus committed that he would do it, there was a confidence in the faithfulness of who he was. And it's like, it's okay now. Now that you've said it, you don't even have to be there. It's okay. It'll happen. Why? Because I can take you at your word. Psalm 138 and verse, what, four, I think. Psalm 138 verse two. I was ahead of myself. 130, you have exalted your word above your name. Yeah. 
Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, before I commit anything to you that doesn't come about, okay, it'll come at my expense. That's what God's saying. He's saying, I will exalt it and I will honor my word. It's in the context of relationship that I get to hear what he says to me. It's in the context of intimacy with him, where the two of us commune, where he's going to begin to talk to us about stuff. And the invitation is going to be extended for us to do something. Paul is, Paul is in the, Paul, Paul's nowhere. Peter's in the boat. <laughs> Peter's in the boat. And Jesus is walking on the water. It wasn't the one who could calm the storms and the waves. It wasn't simply his presence that got Peter out of the boat and onto the water. He knew that Jesus could do that. But hope wasn't enough. It was in the context of communication with Jesus where Jesus said, come. What happened in the word come? A commitment was made on Jesus' behalf to sit and say, if you honor it, I'll be faithful to my word. Menu living is unsatisfying. You get dissatisfied as a Christian when you live from the menu. It's discovering that place. John chapter 5 and verse 19. This is Jesus talking and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does also in the same way. John 14, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. Do you know what he's saying? I'm modeling something for you in this context. I'm wanting for you to understand this. I am Jesus with flesh on. But understand that inside of me, I have the nature of the Father because I was conceived of the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, Jesus in the flesh doesn't live from Jesus in the flesh. Jesus in the flesh is living from the Father who's on the inside. The Father who's on the inside is the one that I have relationship with. The Father on the inside is the one that I separate myself to and I go and spend time with and I commune with and I speak to and I hear his voice. Why? Because he's the one who does what happens. He's the one who gives direction. He's the one who gives the leading. Do you know what he's modeling for us? Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who lives. But Christ who lives inside me. What he's saying is he's taken up residency on the inside of who you are so that you don't have to live by flesh, but you can come and connect with spirit because spirit gives life. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives on in, in, in me. And the life that I now live as Gavin, as Rafa, as fill in the blank, I no longer live, uh, sorry, I live by the faith of who? The Son of God. What is the faith of the Son of God? I live my life from that place where I separate and I get into the secret place together with Him. And we talk about things and I allow Him to speak into my life. And when He speaks into my life, what He does is He gives me His commitment. He gives me His direction. He brings about transformation. He invites me to experience Him. And what He's saying is, you go out and you do that. I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave Himself for me. God knew 
that things don't happen outside of the context of relationship with him. And because of that, he had a grand plan. Even better, oh, never mind. He had a grand plan. His grand plan was this. You know what? I'm not just going to send Jesus to come and live amongst you. What I'm going to do is he's going to make preparation and he's going to do everything necessary so that I can come and live on the inside of you. You don't have to worry about going to try and find Jesus somewhere and sit and say, what is your will? I'm inviting you to a place where you recognize it as the temple of God. He has taken up residence on the inside of you. He didn't take up residence on the inside of you so that you could wear a label. He took up residence on the inside of you so that you can be introduced to relationship. He created a new center on who you, where, who you are. And the invitation is always, come to me. Come and spend time in that space. Come and talk to me. Come and commune with me. Come and share with me. Come and find out from me what it is that I'm looking for for you. Because life and vitality, the spark that you're looking for, is going to be found on the inside of you. It's not going to be found outside here. The invitation is to come unto him. John chapter 15. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. If you begin to dissect that a little bit, if you abide in me, abiding in him is talking about relationship. If you've discovered the secret place on the inside of you, it was what Paul was in pursuit of. After his encounter with God, he's like, I don't want to just live from a once off. I don't want to live from a little dab from having met Jesus. I know that he wants to come and be an integral part of my life. So my pursuit is no longer from living from a dab. I want to discover where he is. If you abide in me, if you have found the secret place on the inside of you, and you know how to go to that place, and you know how to spend time communing with me, you are abiding. If you abide with me, and my words abide in you. Faith comes by? You live by faith is what he's saying. When you discover who I am, and you can come into that arena, and you share your life with me, and you allow me to share my life with you. When you hear my promptings and what I'm inviting you into, what will end up happening is it'll bring out a, a, a transformation in you and create a new foundation to your life. Whatever you ask, ask is a terrible word there, because it doesn't mean ask. What God is saying is this, if you meet the requirements of living from the secret place of relationship, and you hear my words and my directions to you. He says, I challenge you. And he goes even further than that. He says, actually, I command you to come to me and speak, speak to me about what I've given you and hold me accountable for fulfilling that. That's what ask means. Wow. Ask is a lot more powerful than just ask God. What he's saying is when your foundation is right, when your relationship is right, when your words are correct and your context is correct, it opens up an invitation for me to sit and say, I'm going to hold you to your word. 
The reason that Paul was praying was because God had said to him, somebody's going to come and give you sight. What is he doing? He's sitting saying, I heard from him and what the answer is. And I'm praying for that. I'm waiting for it. Somebody's coming. I don't know who. I don't know when. And it might be a day, two days, three days, three weeks. I don't know. But that's what he asked me to pray for. We pray from a different place when we pray from relationship and not form. We pray different prayers when we pray from relationship and not form. You will ask what you desire. The word desire there is also interesting because the word desire there is actually what it means. Is Let me read here. It is not something, a desire is, is um, proceeds not from deliberate, deliberate forethought, but from inclination. What it means is this. The things that you desire are the things that are alive on the inside of you. And those things that are alive on the inside of you are not things that came from your thinking and your deliberation of what you think it should be. Those things that form your desire come from your inclination. It comes from spending time in relationship with him where he sat and said, you know what? This is really what I'm looking for for you. And in that context, it begins to change who I am and affect who I am. And I begin to speak forth and live from his expectation in that situation, not mine. Whatsoever things you desire, it shall be done for you. Done speaks about God is not necessarily just going to take something which is existing and fashion it so that it accommodates the need. What he was saying is, if God, if it's necessary and God requires it, he'll bring it into existence. What he's saying is, when we live from that space, when we allow him to, him to inform our life and our prayer, we live from life. And we live from vitality. We speak from vitality. We live from a, a place where we're looking for the manifestation of what he's given us. And either he's going to change circumstances and situations to accommodate that, or if necessary, I'll bring it into existence. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8 says, The Father knows the things that you need of before you pray. If he knows what you need before you pray, why are you praying? You're not telling him anything new. I think that prayer, in prayer we spend too much time asking and not enough time discovering and being transformed. We want to run to God and tell him what it is that we think we need. We want to sit and quote the menu to God and tell him how it's going to be. The problem with it is that there are nuances because God is interested in the details of your life. And in that context, we need to find out what it is that he wants to do. Jesus is walking along and he comes to the pool of Bethesda. It's a place where People believe that if you left sick people there and you jumped into the pool, when the angel stirred it around, somebody would get healed the first person in. It's a collection of sick people. That's who's there. 
What does he do? He didn't hold a healing service. He could have held a healing service. Lay hands on the sick and they'll be healed. He didn't. He went through everybody who was sick. Walked through the whole bunch. Until he got to one man. Take up your bed and walk. It says nothing about healing anybody else. Why? Why did he walk through everybody who's sick to meet the needs of one man? This is deep. I don't know. (laughs) It's deeper than you think. Because we want to know. The point is, we don't know what's going on in certain things. We don't understand what's happening in people's hearts. We don't know what's happening in circumstances and situations. He does. And the thing about it is in that context, I have to trust that his leading and his guiding and what he's inviting me into, what he's wanting to do in my situation, I may not understand it. It doesn't matter. You're not there to understand. You're there to do. I don't know what's going on in people's hearts. If God doesn't tell you to pray for them, don't pray for them. Lay hands on the sick. Go and live by the menu. Let me know how that works out for you. Smith Wigglesworth, every morning he used to wake up and he would spend time in the secret place talking with God. And when he left that space, very often what ended up happening was God would say to him, I tell you what I want you to do. I want you to go to the church steps down the way. It's the third church on the right, the Baptist one. And wait there, because what you'll see is later this morning, a lady's going to come by. She's going to be wearing an orange top and black slacks. And what I want you to do is go and tell her this. Smith Bigglesworth didn't go out and just pray for everybody randomly. He was led by the Spirit. I'm not saying in any way that what the Scripture presents to us is wrong. What I'm saying is, it's giving us a, a menu Um, of who God is. Lay hands on the sick. Yes, absolutely. And they will recover. Yes, absolutely. Did the Holy Spirit lead you to do it? Because unless he does it, the problem with it is there's no life there. There's no vitality. Joshua. comes to a whole city with big walls around it. And in that context, he's having a look at it. And in the natural, you're going to come up with something. God never said, go and do anything. God said, I'll tell you what I want you to do. Go and march around the city and be quiet and be crazy. Why? Because God is interested in nuances and there might be things at play that we don't understand. But when we learn to live from that place and we learn to get obedient to him, we'll discover his faithfulness. And when you discover his faithfulness, we begin to realize the fact that, you know what? Just do what he asks because that's when things happen. And very often it doesn't happen the way that we think. There are sometimes we go and we pray and we think that prayer didn't work because we didn't get an answer from God. Actually, we did get an answer. It was just no. God has that prerogative. No. Sometimes we want to pray about stuff. I believe I should have this job. And we're telling God what it is that we want to do. And God's like, no. Moses wanted to enter the promised land and he asked God. No. 
David wanted to build a temple. He asked God if he could do it. He said, no. There are times in our life where we think we know what we want. But God just says, no. There's things about it that you don't know and perhaps don't understand. You've got to trust me. It's in the nuances that we discover what it is that he wants to do. It's in the personal relationship where he begins to speak to us in the context of the menu, and he begins to sit and say to us, this is what I'm inviting you into. Here's what I want you to do. And you're going to have to navigate your walk. Joseph had a fabulous dream and a fabulous vision, and he was going to be elevated, and he was going to have status, and he was going to be a man of power, and he was going to be a man of glory, and people were going to come, and people were going to bow, bow down to him. And the first thing that happened on his journey is he, brothers try to kill him, <laughs> which is closely followed by being sold into slavery. What happened to the dream? We give up too easily. If he gives you something, you hold on to it. What I'm proposing is Joseph held on to it. He never let it go. And yes, circumstances may have gone ways that he least expected it. He thought he was going to walk straight into the throne room and the king was going to say, here you are. It never worked that way. Sometimes things take nuances and take side roads. And we don't always understand why. But you've got to trust him. You've got to trust his faithfulness. And you hold on to the word that he's given you. Faith is so powerful because the thing is you hope is not hope doesn't give you the assurance and the power that the word does when i know from him that he said something i'll hold on to be a father of many nations even if i hold on for 20 years and nothing looks like it's coming to pass i'll hold on to the dream that i will be the second ruler in the land even though the fact is that i'm sitting in jail and everybody hates me and i don't really understand why i've been so despised One John five verse fourteen and fifteen. This is the confidence with which this is the confidence which we have before him. Confidence, confidence, confidence comes from one thing: relationship with God. If we don't have relationship with God, we don't have communication with God. If you don't have communication with with God, you're not going to hear what He says to you. Confidence comes from I will heal you. I will make you a ruler. I will make you a father of many nations. When you hear something from God, it'll resonate with you and it'll hold, it'll establish a foundation that you can hold on despite what happens out in your world. If we don't have that, we don't have confidence. We hope things work out and if they don't, we don't understand and our relationship with God begins to wobble. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. The purpose of prayer is to align my will with his will. And in that context, to make sure that his will becomes evident in my situation. It gets back to thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the original me marrying my will to his will. It's the way that I partner with God. The challenge with this 
with it is this. If we don't discover the secret place and we're not at a point where we know how to commune with God and spend time with God and hear from God what it is that we should be praying about, what ends up happening is we don't pray from the spirit, we pray from the flesh. And when we pray from the flesh, it ends up being selfish. I think this is really what I want. I think this is going to put me in a better place. I think this is going to do me well. But the flesh is not where it's supposed to come from. We are supposed to pray into his will in that situation, specifically. And we discover that in that context. The opportunity we have in moving forward is profound. God wants to meet you. And he wants you to meet him. Not because of what you've heard about him. Because he wants you to understand that the moment he's began a work in you, the moment that he cleaned you up and put his life on the inside of you, it was an invitation to sit and say, come and spend time with me in the secret place. When you live from that place, when you move from that place, when you have your being from that place, is when life happens. What makes us an extraordinary people is not the fact that we are smarter than other people or because we wear a religious badge, but because we have the life of God on the inside of us. And the vitality of that is something that informs who I am with regularity. We have a wonderful opportunity. We, we, I think we, we get so busy with life sometimes that we forget about what we really have. I thought of a very weird thing. You know the story about the Midas touch? It's King Midas, and I can't remember, he kissed a frog or something, I don't know what happened. <laughs> And because of it, whatever happened, he, everything he touched turned to gold. And the thing about it is he loved it in the beginning, but then he began to recognize the fact that what he carried was a power that was so profound that he needed to be very intentional about it. Because if he touched the wrong thing, like his daughter, she would turn to gold. And in some way, I think that we haven't walked into the profound recognition that we all are kind of like Midas. When we begin to live from the secret place, the things that we touch, the places that we go, the people that we commune with, the things that we put into people's lives, we should live in the expectation something's going to happen. Be careful if you're around me because there's a life on the inside of me. And if you ask me to pray for you, understand this. Change is coming. Change is coming. Why? Because I'm living from that place and it's not something that's distant and I'm unaware of in theory it's down there, but I've moved into that space where I'm deliberately living from connection and interaction with the greater one on the inside of me. Father, I want to thank you for your incredible power in life. I thank you that you love us so much and that you're so interested in who we are. 
I want to thank you that you've taken up residence on the inside of us. Father, as we purpose in ourselves to discover that secret place, as we purpose and become intentional about sitting saying, I appreciate the menu, but I want to taste the food. As we move to that place of recognizing and moving into relationship with you, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will just take on that journey, that you will lead us and that you will guide us, that you will bring about change and transformation in our lives because we live from a place of relationship, the essence of vitality in life. Bless you. Thank you for the week that lies ahead. Can we all stand, please? If you want an encounter, with him. If you want to have something that you, uh, a way in which you experience him this week that is profoundly different to where you've been. Everybody just close your eyes and keep your heads down. I just want you to raise your hands. Don't do it out of form. Do it if you intentionally are looking for something like that. You are looking for him to touch you in a way that you've never been. You're looking for him to meet you at a place that is going to bring about change and transformation in you. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for every hand that is raised here right now. In the name of Jesus, I speak life into every person here. Holy Spirit, you see hearts and you see hands raised. And every person that has got their hands raised, I want to thank you, Father. They are asking of you. They are looking for you to do something profound in their life this week. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you encounter them as they're intentional and set themselves apart this week to meet with you. I thank you that it'll be a meeting that'll be profound in their life. A place where they will mark the calendar and be at that place things changed. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to do that right now. In Jesus' name.